All right, praises be to our loving Abba that we're able to again study his words and his commands. We have several questions we're going to be answering today from the Holy Scriptures. Uh, what will happen to those who died but did not get to hear the words of God, who is the fulfillment of Revelation 2, 26 to 28. And lastly, we're going to look at, is the sin of the Father the sin of the Son? So let's go ahead and begin uh, with the question. Uh, the first question in our lineup uh, which is given to us by one of our viewers. So who is going to embody the work mentioned in Malachi 4, 5 to 6? Has that already happened? Who is the fulfillment of Revelation 2, 26 to 28? Now, of course, we've already addressed the first question, uh, who is going to embody the work mentioned in Malachi 4, 5 to 6? Has this already happened? We to give you a summary of our answer to that question, we believe, according to our King Yahushua himself, that John the Baptist partially fulfilled the prophecy concerning the third Elijah or the Elijah that is to come, who is to restore all things. The reason why we say it is only a partial fulfillment is because, according to our King Yahushua himself, for those who believed the preaching of John the Baptist to them, it is Elijah who is to come. However, we know many did not believe, many did not receive the preaching of John the Baptist. Consequently, they put him to death and also the Mashiach to death. And so our King Yahushua said, after the death of John the Baptist, there is another Elijah that is to come right before the end of the world. And this is going to be embodied or to be fulfilled, we believe, in the ministry of the two witnesses. And the ministry of the two witnesses, if you will examine it, closely corresponds to the work of the small remnant, the assembly of Yahushua. And so we can expect, just as the small remnant, during the days of Elijah, the prophet, when he confronted Baal and the false prophets of Baal, uh, Elijah, the prophet, single-handedly, with, with, of course, the help of the manifestation of the power and strength of Yahuwah, from heaven demonstrated that indeed they were the true people of Allahim. So in that same power, in that same sense, the assembly of Yahushua today, which are the small remnant, are going to benefit from the work of this last Elijah who is going to come before the end of the world. So that will be fulfilled in latter times. And it's going to come soon, brothers and sisters, because everything is happening so fast. If you're Watching the news, Poland, basically were bombarded with a missile, I guess, and they're accusing um, Russia that they were the ones who perpetrated it. If this is true, because Poland is a NATO nation, this could escalate into something bigger. This could escalate to perhaps the fulfillment of the sixth trumpet. So we don't know. Uh, we're just watching the news. But we do know, what we do know is when these powers will begin to emerge, that's when we can also expect the emergence of the two witnesses who will embody the work of Malachi 4, 5 to 6 in the spirit of uh, Elijah and the spirit of Moses. If you want more information, we discussed this last week in our previous BQ&A, who is the third Elijah? For today, let's look at the second question. Who is the fulfillment of Revelation 2, 26 down to 28? So let's go ahead and look at Revelation Chapter 2, 26 down to 28. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, uh, to him I will give power over the nations. 
he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. And so that's the passage in Revelation chapter 2, 26 down to 28. The question is, who is the fulfillment of Revelation 2, 26 to 28? And the question, I guess, is focusing on verse 27, where it mentions he shall rule them with a rod of iron. So they want to know who is that he referred to. Now, I believe one of the reasons why this question is even asked is because there's a belief that is amongst the so-called defenders and what, or not the so-called defenders, but people who are still in the institution, the Iglesia Ni Cristo. And when we had conversations with some of them, they're complaining about this and that, about, you know, they want to leave the the uh, the institution but they said they choose not to leave because they believe that even though we are being administered by a leader who they cannot trust this is their own opinion and they said they have to stay because it is appointed by god that they will be ministered or administered by a king who will rule them with a rod of iron and so they believe that Brother Eduardo Manalo is the one referred to here as the one who will rule them with a rod of iron. The reason why they say he rules with a rod of iron is heavy-handed when it comes to his discipline. So this is their conclusion. Of course, I don't buy it. I don't believe it at all. But that's what they're using to uh, so that they have an excuse or they have a reason for remaining inside the institution because it is the will of God that the church be ruled by someone who is with a rod of iron. However, first of all, there's something wrong with that kind of thinking. Number one, um, he is not the one referred to here as the king, because there's this mindset that the church administrator is like the king of the church. But we believe there's only one king over the church. Who is that? Our king, Yahushua. This is why when you hear, when you see this, he shall rule them with a rod of iron, I believe this does not apply to Brother Eduardo Villamanalo. Well, then who is the fulfillment of this passage? Has this been fulfilled already? It's not yet fulfilled. It will be fulfilled in the future. And how will it be fulfilled? Who is the one referred to there? He shall rule them with a rod of iron. It's in the passage. All you need to do is read verse 26. Who is the one who shall rule with a rod of iron? Bible says he who overcomes. And so this is not just one person, but many people, because the Bible gives us the condition, if there is a person who overcomes, which means they keep the works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. And so when we look at Revelation 2, verse 27, where it says he, that does not apply to one person, but everyone who was able to overcome and do the work of Yahuwah and Yahushua. What proves this? Who is referred to here who can be candidates of overcomers that will result in them receiving 
this type of rulership with a rod of iron. Let's read the book of Revelation 2, 18 to 19. So we're just going to go, go up the passage to get the context. This is what it says. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write these things, says the Son of God. He who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your, your works, the last are more than the first. And so what we read in Revelation chapter 2, in connection with the fulfillment of the promise, which is for those who overcome, they will be given power to rule over the nations with a rod of iron, right? And so in connection with that, our King Yahushua was I, uh, directly addressing the church in Thyatira. Remember, in Revelation 2 and 3, we find the messages of our King Yahushua to the seven churches. These were actual congregations established during the days of the apostles. And so our King Yahushua from heaven gives a revelation to the Apostle John. And the, the letters that were received by the Apostle John were meant to be given to the bishops, to the lead, the elders of the seven congregations, the seven assemblies throughout the first century. Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and Ephesus. These are the four, I mean, the seven churches or the seven assemblies. So the promise for those who overcome and to be given rulership or power over the nations to rule with the rod of iron that was given to the church in Thyatira. But does it mean it's only for those who belong to Thyatira in the first century? No. What's the proof? Let's read Revelation 2, 26, 29. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the promise, to the overcomer, which is they will receive power over the nations and they shall rule with a rod of iron. Is this promise only for those who are members of the Thyatira congregation in the first century? What is your answer? No, because when you look at verse 29, this promise is also given to everyone who has an ear, right? What does that mean? It means everyone who is in the assembly, the church, or in the body of our King Yahusha. So if one is a disciple of Yahusha, and as a disciple of Yahusha, we overcome, then we shall receive this promise, a promise to the overcomer. This is why we want you to watch our series concerning the seven assemblies because it teaches us the requirements, the message of our King Yahushua to the different assemblies, which is also a message to all of us. And corresponding to the message includes the promises of Yahushua, one of which is, I will give you power over the nations. And so because this applies to everyone who has an ear, which every human being does have, it is applicable to all of us who are disciples of Yahushua. Now, what does it mean? that they will be give, they shall rule with a rod of iron. Well, Bible tells us that we will be given power over the nations. 
And so this promise is not to just one individual. It is to many. And they will have power over the nations. Now, what does that mean? They will have power over the nations. What is the seat of this power, the source of this power? Revelation 3, 20 to 22. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. What is the source of this power to be given to those who are going to overcome? It is the authority of our king, Yahushua, because Yahushua was given power and authority. Remember the passage in which Yahushua says all authority and power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He sits at the throne. And then he tells us those who overcome, they sit in the throne with me. What does that mean? That means we get to rule together with our king, Yahushua. This is why the promise to the overcomer in Revelation 2, 26 to 28 is for those who belong to his assembly, those who belong to his body and are able to overcome. They will have the authority of our king, Yahushua. What authority is that? Let's read Revelation 1, 5 to 6. And from Yahushua Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So according to our king, according to the holy scriptures, our king Yahushua, redeemed people with his blood and those among those redeemed by his blood those who overcome they will rule with him with his authority what is that authority how will we how will we rule with him bible says that we are made kings and priests to god and father and so we will work with the function of a king and a priest now, when you think of a king and a priest, there are three categories, right? Number one, Melchizedek. Number two, the greater Melchizedek, Yahusha. And though, number three, those who belong to Yahusha. The overcomers, Bible says, will be made kings and priests to his God and Father. Now, when will this be? When will those who are overcomers rule over the nations with a rod of iron. Let's read Revelation 20, 4 to 6. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Yahushua and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again. Until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ. And shall reign with him a thousand years. So when will we fulfill our role as ruler together with our King Yahushua? Bible says this will take place in the millennium. What is the millennium? The thousand years. This is why in the vision given to the Apostle John. Apostle John says, I saw thrones. 
and they who they sat on them in judgment was committed to them. That's the fulfillment of Revelation 2, 26 to 28, when the Bible says they will be given a rod of iron, they will rule over the nations. Apostle John sees in Revelation 20, when the millennium is going to begin, there are people who are going to sit in those thrones and judgment was committed to them. They are the ones who will rule with Christ for a thousand years. So when Yahusha returns and he will defeat all the, the nations who are against him, the kingdom is going to enter a new phase here on earth and we are going to co-rule with our king Yahusha. Now, what does it mean that we will rule with a rod of iron? Does it mean we're going to be tyrants? Because when you look at the word rule, you, you're going to think, okay, a person who's ruling with a rod of iron, that means they're going to be Hitler types of individuals. Is that what it is? Well, let's look at the Greek word used when it says rule. This is what it says. Let's go to the Blue Letter Bible. This is what it says in Revelation. He shall rule. The Greek word used is Greek G4165, which is poimaino. Now, what does that mean? It's all Greek to me, brother. What does that mean in English? Where? According to the biblical usage, it is to feed, to tend, to flock, to keep sheep, to tend as a shepherd, or to feed. And so the word to rule in English, it sounds like someone who's going to be overpowered, right? So you're thinking, okay, we're going to rule. We're going to be like tyrants, or we're going to be someone, because when you think of the word rule, you're thinking of oppression. It's like, it sounds like we're going to be oppressing these nations. No, we, when we become co-rulers with our King Yahusha, what it actually means is we're going to be co-shepherds. You get it? We're going to be taking care of the nations of the world, teaching them the law, teaching them the commandments, teaching them how to worship Yahuwah and to call upon his name. Well, why does it say we're going to be given the rod of iron? Because we will have power. I mean, what would a shepherd be if his rod is ineffective, right? And so the rod of iron that tells us our authority and power is solid. It cannot be taken away. It is powerful. But our work is to feed, to tend to the flock. And so we will rule with a rod of iron. In other words, we will feed, we will shepherd with authority that is powerful because we will do so on behalf of our king, Yahusha. Now, what does it mean that I will give him the morning star? Because this is part of the promise. The promise is we're going to be ruling together with our king, Yahusha, meaning we're going to be co-shepherds with him during the millennial reign. We're going to be teaching the gospel, teaching the Ten Commandments. So what does it mean that we will be given the morning star? Well, when you think of a star, you think of a celestial object in the heavens, right? A morning star is someone that's really bright, a bright star. Well, who is likened to a bright morning star? Let's read Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Yahushua, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So Yahushua himself identifies himself as the bright and morning star. Now, what does it mean when he says he's the bright and morning star? Does it mean he's a celestial object in heaven? No. Why does he say he's the bright and morning star? Let's read the book of Corinthians 
15, 40 to 43, there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another one, apostle for a while. And so apostle Paul is making a distinction between the glory of an earthly body and the heavenly body, celestial body. It's a different kind of glory, a different kind of brightness, a different kind of glow, 41. 41, there is one glory to the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. What does it mean? That our king Yahusha is the morning star, the bright star. He is the one that is shining brightest because of the glory that he was able to attain. Remember, he started out as a human being, but he died, right? When Yahuwah created him, he created him lower than the angels, Hebrews chapter 2. But then he made him greater than all creation. And so he became the bright morning star, the greatest manifestation of glory. That's why he referred to himself as the bright and glorious star. So the different levels of glory, different brightness to even the stars. And so when it says we will be given the morning star, we're going to be given a certain kind of glory. What does that mean? Let's keep reading, 50 to 54. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought up to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. What does it mean? That we will be given the morning star? It means we who started out life as a terrestrial being, we're going to have our bodies transformed. What kind of body are we going to have? A body that can dwell in the kingdom of heaven. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And so we need to be changed. What will happen to our bodies? It will put on immortality. It will put on a body that does not get old, it does not die, it does not get corrupted. To what will our body be like? In Philippians 3, 20, 21, for our citizenship is in heaven, uh, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Yahushua Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the workings by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And so to what will our bodies be likened to? like the body of our king, Yahusha, glorious, a glorious body. This is why when Yahusha said, I will give them the morning star, Yahusha's promising us, we're going to have a body like the body of who? Like the body of Yahusha, the Christ. It will be glorious. And so the promise for those who overcome is that we will be able to pastor, shepherd, during the millennial kingdom, 
with the authority and power of our King Yahushua, the rod of iron, and we will do so as beings that have been transformed from a terrestrial body into a glorious body, like the body of our King Yahushua. This is why when we will be pastoring and shepherding the people of the world, we will do so not with our limited physical bodies that we have now, but with a body that's going to be like the body of our King Yahushua. Can't wait, right? For the millennial kingdom. And so what we need to do now is to overcome. That's the message of our King Yahushua. Overcome the world by obeying the word of Yahuwah Elohim. Okay, let's go to our next question. Uh, this is a, I take the time to read the comment here. Wonderful teaching. Uh, it is so reassuring when one who studies the word of God, scripture finds that there is agreement among the seekers of truth without ever having met them. It truly contributes to the believer's confidence that he or she is being led by the helper, the Holy Spirit, and that there's truly only one shepherd and one flock. Love it. I have been contemplating the thousand-year reign of our King Allah lately, so your video was published timely in terms of confirming many of my findings. I really appreciate your teaching that there will be those grafted into the vine that will survive the tribulation to be instructed by the resurrected and transformed believers of Yahuwah and his anointed King Yahusha during the thousand-year reign, which is what we talked about, right? There is, however, a question that I have been pondering and researching for some time, uh, for some time now, that remains unanswered. What happens to the dead who are sleeping who did not get to hear the living word of God? Will they have to wait until the end of the thousand-year reign and be judged before the great white throne? My impression of that judgment is that any who stand before the throne at that time will be thrown into the lake of fire sulfur. If you could shed some light on that topic, it would be uh, greatly appreciated. Please know that your ardent love for the, of the truth as given to us by the Father through his only begotten Son shines like a brilliant light. Thank you so much for your hard work in obeying our Elohim's command to make disciples of all nations. May the Father bless you and yours in your obedience. Hallelujah. Come Yahusha Adonai, fellow believer and truth seeker. And so we're very happy for the message that we have received. Praises be to our living Father for the work that we do, which is to preach the word, the scripture of our loving Abba Yahuwah. Now to go to uh, her question, I did not put the name there for confidentiality's sake. There is, however, a question that I have been pondering and researching for some time now that remains unanswered. What happens to the dead? who are sleeping, who did not get a chance to hear the living word of God. Well, they have to wait until the end of the thousand-year reign and be judged before the great white throne. That's a good question. And it's a question that we really do not have a very explicit answer from Scripture, right? But we can look at some passages and put several things together and come up with a, a type of conclusion. And so the question is, how about if a person who's never heard of the word of God, and they died, right? I mean, what will happen to them? Are they going to be judged? When are they going to be judged? What's going to happen to them? Can they still be saved? Well, this is what Apostle Paul teaches us regarding this question. In Romans chapter 2, 14 and 16, even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts. 
for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they are doing right. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Yahushua, will judge everyone's secret life. And so according to Apostle Paul, there are people indeed who never received the preaching of the word of God, right? Depends on which dispensation of time you're talking about during the days of the ancient Israelites. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of people from remote areas of the world who probably did not receive the preaching of the Ten Commandments brought by Moses, right? Because they're, they are in remote lands. During our time today, it's less of a problem because we have the internet. And so basically, a lot of people, even in third world countries, remote areas throughout the world, they, can, they have access uh, to the gospel. They have access to the preaching. But there are uh, periods and pockets of time and remote places where they have no opportunity to receive the words of Yahuwah. You see, what we know about Yahuwah is that he is fair, he is just, he is righteous. And we're going to talk more about that in the last question we're going to be discussing today. And so having that as our background, I know that Yahuwah is just, he is fair. Because when you think about it, I mean, would it be fair for a person who's never heard of the word of God to be judged? It's probably not fair, right? And so according to Holy Scriptures, Apostle Paul tells us, look at the Gentiles. They never heard of the word of God. But what do they do? Instinctively. The Bible says they, they instinctively know the difference between right and wrong. It may be a little vague. It may not be written down, codified in law, the way the, the people of Israel had it. Nevertheless, it's still written somewhere. And Apostle Paul says this demonstrate of God's law, the Ten Commandments, is written in their hearts. This is why their conscience bothers them whenever they violate or disobey one of the Ten Commandments of Abba. This is proof, you know, when people uh, sometimes reject the idea that there is a God, there's a Bible. They they say that uh, you know I mean that that God is just a creation of man. But one of the great evidences that there is a God, that there is scriptures that is from God, is the fact that people they obey a law that's written in their hearts. They have a moral compass. So the question is, where did that come from? Did that come from evolution? Where did it come from? This is a demonstration, Apostle Paul says, that God's law was written in their hearts. And after saying that, Apostle Paul says there's going to be a day, right, when everyone's secrets will be judged. In other words, there's going to be a day when all of us are going to face Yahuwah and Yahusha. And so if a person never gets a chance to receive the word of God, what will happen to them? When will they be judged? Well, when is that day when all people are going to be judged? Well, let's read what it says in the book of Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. I want to pause it for a while. This is Revelation 20, 11 to 15. This is after the millennial kingdom. So our judgment is finished, right? Those who belong to Yahushua, there's no judgment. There's no condemnation. We don't, we don't have to go uh, through this process of judgment because we are already perfect, made holy, because we have a new head representing us. Who is that? Our King Yahushua. So this is, doesn't apply to us. This is after the millennial kingdom. And so what happens? And I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. 
from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books, books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So what we have, what we find here is a process. What will happen to those who are not part of the first uh, resurrection, those who were not part of the rapture, the harpazo. And so there are people who've never heard of the word of God. Everyone's going to be resurrected and they're going to face the white throne judgment. Now in the white throne judgment, take notice, there's going to be books opened, right? There's going to be books open in verse 17. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. So people who die, they're going to be resurrected. You know, people who died in the sea, in the air, it doesn't matter. The earth is going to give away the dead. They're going to all stand before the throne of God. And so these are the people who were not part of the, uh, the, the first resurrection. And so they're going to be uh, going to be judged. They're going to face uh, judgment. And then it says, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which was what? The book of life. And so if another book, which is the book of life, is open, that means before the book of life was open, there were other books open before it, right? Because it says another book was open, which is the book of life. And so there were other books open first. What could this be? Well, it could be book of works. I mean, we don't have that explicitly written, but we can assume that it could be the book of works. This is part of our speculation. We cannot know for sure, um, but the book of works could be open. And everyone... They were judged each according to his works. Now, when it says one is judged according to his works, it can tell us one of two things. Either they will be blessed because of their works or they will be condemned because of a lack or because of their works. So one can be blessed, one can be condemned. That's the purpose of judgment, right? To determine if it's a blessing or a condemnation. Now, if it's going to be a blessing, if those who never received the word of God and because of the works that they have done, because they didn't get a chance to reject or accept the Messiah, right? They're going to be judged according to their works. Now they're going to be given a chance to accept Messiah. If so, then they're going to be added to the book of life. And so they could receive salvation uh, on, uh, for, for based on that. And so because of their works, they will receive grace and they will be added into Messiah and their, their names are going to be written in the book of life. Why is that important? Because if one's name is not found written in the book of life, what happens to that person? They'll be cast into the lake of fire. And so, of course, uh, that's, uh, that is not completely, explicitly, um, from the, the passage that we can read in the Bible. It's like a, an implication of the passage. It's not explicit, but it is implied. This is why we don't want to, you know, we, we don't want to be too dogmatic 
about that at this point, okay? Hopefully that kind of sheds some light uh, to the question that was answered. All right, let's go to our last, our last question for today. Good day, Brother John. Hello, Paul. What do you mean by this? A false proverb refuted Ezekiel 18. And so there's a proverb refuted in Ezekiel 18. The father have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. The sin of the father is not the sin of the son. But in Exodus 20, verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, Yahuwah, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Is it a different case for idolatry, right? Is it, a, it is a different case for idolatry, right? That would be effective for the descendants when you committed idolatry. Is that correct? Well, thank you, Paul. So let's go ahead. There are two things here. Uh, we'll look at Ezekiel and then we'll look at Exodus. And so Ezekiel 18, it mentions the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And so what this implies is that the, uh, the, the fathers eat the grapes, but the one who suffer are the kids, right? And so let's look at this proverb in Ezekiel 18, 1 down to 2. The word of Yahuwah came to me, to Ezekiel, saying, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Yisharal, saying... The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Interesting, because the Bible tells us that Yahuwah is confronting Ezekiel and he's telling Ezekiel, why are the people using this proverb? What is that proverb? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Why are the people like using this proverb? That's because in Ezekiel 15 to 17, the prophet Ezekiel uh, prophesied three parables of judgment against Israel. If you read 15, 16, 17 of Ezekiel, obviously we're not going to read that for today's episode, but you can read it on your own. There's three parables Ezekiel gives, which is basically an indictment against the people of Israel. The reason why they're suffering immensely, and it's because they have been judged. So there's judgment against Israel. Israel is suffering. And who do they blame? You know, what are the people shouting out? What is their belief system? Ezekiel 18, verse 25. Yet you say, uh, the way of the Lord is not fair. Here now, O house of Yisrael, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? And so the people of Yisrael, they're complaining, why are we suffering for the sins, the idolatry of our fathers, right? And so they're, they're complaining. That is what they're expressing. This is why the proverb became famous. So a proverb is what they began to circulate. And it was used to express the people's belief that they were suffering not because of their own sins, but because of the sins of their father. So they're basically saying, Yahuwah is not just. He is not fair. Because the sins of the father has been passed on to the children. And so they're complaining against Yahuwah. And so Yahuwah goes and confronts uh, Ezekiel, and he says, you know, the problem that's been used to pass around is the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. And so the fathers eating sour grapes is affecting the, chil the uh, children's teeth. And so they're concluding, you know, the sins of the father has been passed on to the sins of the son. And they're crying injustice. They're complaining against Yahuwah. It's not fair. Why do we have to suffer for the sins of our 
father. So the question is, does Ezekiel 18 teach that the sins of the father are the sins of the son? Well, when we look at 18, 1 to 2, you notice the word of Yahuwah came to me again saying, in other words, Yahuwah was calling Ezekiel to clarify what is happening with the people of Israel. Yahusha Alahim, in this passage, with this proverb that's being circulated, Yahuwah is telling Ezekiel, right, to clarify to Israel that the sins of the father is not the sins of the son. And so two things I want to say about that proverb. You know, it could be a false proverb altogether. Or it could be a proverb that's misunderstood because it seems to suggest that the sins of the father is also the sins of the son. But Ezekiel 18 destroys this idea that the sins of the father is not the sins of the son. This is why Ezekiel 18 is there in the first place. Ezekiel 18 is for the purpose of clarifying to the people of Yisrael once and for all that it's not true, this idea, this belief they have, that the sins of the father is also the sins of the son. So how does Ezekiel go about doing this? He gives us three case examples, beginning with the word suppose. And so when we examine these three case examples, we will conclude without a shadow of a doubt, it's not true that the sins of the father is also the sins of the son. So let's begin with Ezekiel 18, 5 down to 9. Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of the house of Yisrael. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or lie with a woman during her period. He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend at usury or take excessive interest. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between man and man. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Yahuwah. So this is the first case example. Ezekiel says, suppose there's a righteous man who does what is right in the eyes of Yahuwah. Will he live? Yes. Even if there's judgment against all of Yisrael, Yahuwah is saying, in this case, this man will live. This man will be blessed, even if all of Yisrael is under the judgment of Yahuwah. So that tells us that Yahuwah is just and fair, right? And so Yahuwah is teaching us about individual responsibility and accountability, okay? So that's case example number one. And so we read up to verse nine. Let's read 10 down to 13. Suppose now he has a violent son who sheds blood or does any of these other things. Though the father has done none of them. He eats at the mountain shrines. He defiles his neighbor's wife. He oppresses the poor and needy. He commits robbery. He does not return what he took in pledge. He looks to the idols. He does detestable things. He lends at usury and takes excessive interest. Will such a man live? He will not because he has done all these detestable things. He will surely be put to death and his blood will be on his own head. This is an unusual case. You have a father who's doing good, right? And so even if all Yisrael is being condemned, this father is being blessed. Usually when the father is doing what is good, usually that influences the son, but not always. Ultimately, it's all about the son's choice. 
there's an influence of good that should have been transferred from the father to the son. But the son still has to make the decision, right? The son still has to make the choice. You cannot transfer the goodness of the father to the son. The influence to do good can be transferred, but still the son still has to act on that influence and do what is good. In this case, the son does not take up according to his father. What does the son do? <laughs> the opposite, right? So the father is doing righteousness. The son is doing the opposite. He's doing, he's oppressing, he's shedding blood. He does all these detestable things. And so what does the Bible say? He will surely be put to death and his blood will be on his own head. Okay. So, so far we see the justice of Yahuwah. And then take a look at this. So and we read verse 13. Let's continue now to verse 14. This is the third case example. But suppose this son has a son, right? So this son who's evil and wicked has a son who sees all the sins his father commits. And though he sees them, he does not do such things. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look at the idols of the house of Yishorah. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. He does not oppress anyone or require a pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He withholds his hand from sin and takes no usury or excessive interest. He keeps my laws and follows my decrees. He will not die for his father's sin. He will surely live, but his father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong among his people. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Since the son has done what is just and right, and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. And here's the conclusion. I want you to focus on it. Verse 20. The soul who sins is the one who will die. There, there may have been influence to do good, influence to do sin, right? But ultimately, what is going to be judged? What action is taken? Regardless of the influence. In this case, the third example, the son, well, he had a bad influence. Who was his influence? His father who was doing unrighteously, right? But it did not affect him. He made his own choice. And because he made his own choice, he chose to, to act righteously. And the Bible says he will be blessed. He will live. And then the conclusion, the soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share, share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the sin will be charged against him. And so according to scripture, according to Yahuwah himself, according to these case examples, what conclusion can we draw from the justice and fairness of our, of our father Yahuwah? The sin of the father is not given to the sin of the son. You get it? Right? It's not transferable. The sin is not transferable. And this is confirmed in Deuteronomy 24, 16 as well. Father shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. And so this is called accountability. Yahuwah is calling upon everyone to take responsibility for their own actions, regardless of the influence that the people, the culture, the parents may have. And so even if there's a lot of negative influence, if you do what is right, you'll be judged accordingly. If you do what is wrong, even if there's good influence, you will still be judged accordingly. 
And so the point is the person's choice will result in action taken against his or him, his or her, himself or herself, right? Depending on his or her own action and choice. It's called accountability. It's called individual responsibility. And this is the justice of our father, Yahuwah, which takes us to uh, the question connected to this. Well, how about Exodus 20 and the verse is five, right? Is it, and so the question is, is uh, the, the concept, the sin of the father is not given to the sin of the, it's not given to the son. Is that like only applicable if it's not idolatry related because of Exodus 20? Let's read Exodus 20, four down to five. It's often misunderstood when many people read this passage. It appears sometimes people make a conclusion that the sin of the father is transferred to the sin of the son, but that's not the case. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, Yahuwah, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So when you read that passage, what does that tell you? One might conclude and say, well, isn't the passage saying to us that if a father sins and sins against Yahuwah because of idolatry, the sin is going to be given to the children, to the third and fourth generations? Is that pretty much what this is all about to the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge and on edge. Does Yahuwah Allahim punish the sons of the sins of the father according to Exodus 24 down to 5? Well, let's take a closer look at Exodus 24 down to 5. It says in verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. That's idolatry, right? So this is a specific sin in one of in one of the Ten Commandments of Abba. And then the Bible says, for I, Yahuwah, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children. And so the Bible says that there's going to be this work of visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their, on the children, for the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So let's look at the Hebrew word for two of these words, visiting and iniquity, okay? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers. Does this mean that the father's sins are transferred or are inherited by their sons to the third and fourth generations? Is that what it means? Let's look at the word visiting. It's the Hebrew word 6485, pakad. And this is what it means to attend to, to muster, to number, to reckon, to pay attention, to observe. And so when it says visiting, the iniquities, what Yahuwah is saying is that the, one should pay attention to the iniquities that are affecting the lives of people even up to the fourth generation, right? And so to pay attention, to attend to, to muster, to number, to reckon. In other words, what Yahuwah wants is for you to think about why certain things are happening, okay? That's one, that's to visit. Visit the iniquity. What does iniquity mean? Let's read uh, Hebrew 5771 ion, and it means perversity, depravity, iniquity, guilt or punishment of iniquity. And so what, what iniquity is, is basically perversity or depravity. 
And so what God, Allahim, is telling us is whenever there's a sin of idolatry, examine and look at the depravity it's creating. Because when there is sin, there's an effect of sin. What is transferred is not sin itself, but the influence of sin. And what is the influence of sin? The effect of sin, especially idolatry, is perversion. It perverts culture. It perverts thinking. And it perverts the desires of the heart. So what is being transferred is not sin, but the propensity to commit sin. What's being transferred is not sin itself, but the influence of sin and the consequences of sin. Okay, That's an important distinction. The consequence and influence of sin is what's being in, uh, transferred, not sin itself. This is why when you examine the history of the people of Yisrael and, and Yahudah, what do you notice about the kings, for example? The kings of Yisrael. I mean, we're not even going to look at the people because the people take, take on the picture of their king for the, for the most part. Not everything, not everyone. There's always exceptions because ultimately it's about your choice, right? There can be negative influence. There can be positive influence. But the bottom line is, what is your choice? This is why you don't get to make the excuse, my parents made me do it. <laughs> no, you get to make your choice. You are going to answer for the choice that you make. And so according to the history of the people of Elohim, when you look at the kings of Yisharal and the kings of Yehudah, in this graphic chart, um, the dark shaded one, that represents a good king, right? And the lighted ones, that represents a bad king. And the middle, not too dark, not too light, that represents a mixture of good and bad. So when we look at Yisharal, no one's a good king. <laughs> In the history of Yisharal, there was no good king. There was one who came close, Jehu, but he wasn't considered a good king. It was a mixture of good and bad, right? When you look at Yahuda, they did somewhat better, but the majority is still good, I mean, bad. There were some who were considered good, like Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah, but most of the rest are bad and evil. What does that tell you? The influence and the power of wickedness to influence individuals. This is called peer pressure, right? I mean, if you are a good person, innocent person, and you have friends who are into drugs and alcohol and smoking, I mean, eventually what's gonna to happen to you? You're gonna be influenced to do those things, right? I mean, it doesn't mean that if you hang out with people who drink and do alcohol and do drugs, it doesn't mean you inherit their sin. You inherit the atmosphere, you inherit the influence that they have to cause you to commit sin, right? And so the same thing, that's what sin does, especially idolatry. Idolatry perverts, it influences you so that your desires change, your thinking changes, your vision changes, and so you begin to act just like everyone else. And this is what happened to Yisrael, Yahudah. Right? But it doesn't mean that you are going to be punished because of the sins of the nation. This is what we saw in the book of Ezekiel. And this is what we can see sometimes even in the individual kings themselves. Take a look at Asa. Right? Uh, Asa, whose father is Abijam. Right? So Abijam is the father. 
Asa is the son. During the reign of Abijah, what did he do? Let's read 1 Kings 15, 1 to 3. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, Abijah, became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maaka, and the granddaughter of Ab Abishalom. And he, Abijam, walked in all the sins of his father, right? Which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to, his, to Yahuwah, his God, as was the heart of his father David. So here we have Abijam. Was he a good king or bad king? Bad king. Why was he a bad king? Because he walked in all the sins of his father. So he had a father. That was his role model. That was his example. It was a bad example. So it's not surprising that Abijam ended up walking in all the sins of his father, right? And so that's what happened to him. So the influence of evil was transferred. He was affected by evil and committed evil himself. And so he did, he's, he did it himself. It wasn't just influenced by evil, the evil of his father. He actually did the evil himself, okay? So that was Abijam. And so he was considered a wicked king. Abijam has a son who takes over the kingdom. What's his name? Asa. And so when you look at the situation, Asa should be no different, right? I mean, if Exodus 20, 4 out of 5, tells us that the sins of Abijam is transferred to Asa, then Asa is gone. He has no hope, right? Well, what happens to Asa? Let's read 9 to 13. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king over Judah, and he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. It's a long time. His father, how long did he reign for? Three years. 41. What does that mean? Yahuwah was blessing him. And he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His grandmother's name was Ma'aka, the granddaughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of Yahuwah, as did his father David. And he banished the perverted persons from the land. And he removed all the idols that his fathers had made. Also, he removed Ma'aka, his grandmother, from being queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. And Asa cut down her obscene image and burned it by the brook Kidron. And so look at, the, look at the influence that Asa had growing up. A grandmother who set up the Asherah and a father who set up the other idolatry and walked the wickedness according to his father, right? So Asa, when you look at the choices he could have made, it should have been evil, right? But he made his own choice. He did not inherit the sins of his father. He did not inherit the sins of his grandmother. He may have in inherited the influence to commit sin, but it doesn't mean you're going to commit that sin. What's the proof? Asa chose an opposite path. What did he do? He removed the eyes. He removed the images. He removed idolatry. And so Yahuwah was pleased with him. This, so he did good in the eyes of Yahuwah. So what is passed on from father to son is not sin, but the consequences and influence of sin. This is why when we read Exodus 24 down to 5, it tells us what is when it says visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me is the warning that when you commit idolatry, when you commit sin, it has a negative effect that can last for generations. 
but it doesn't mean you are imprisoned to that effect, that influence. You can still make your choice, the choice to either obey Yahuwah or to obey the influence that you're surrounded with. The same goes for 18, one to two. So I believe, you know, even if this proverb is, you know, I, I think this proverb makes sense. Potters have eaten sour grapes. The children's teeth are set on edge. The children, you know, would have in, been influenced by the fathers eating sour grapes, but the children could have not eaten sour grapes at all. They could have made that choice, right? Anyway, so what do we do? I mean, if the influence and the consequences of our sin is going to be transferred, it's going to affect us today, right? What do we do? Well, in the book of Ephesians 6 down to 4, fathers do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord, because of the influence that parents have on the development of their children, it is of utmost importance that the parents do what they can while their children are still young to train them and to instruct them in the instruction of Yahuwah, in the instruction of Yahusha. And this is a, a teaching of the Apostle Paul, and this teaching of the Apostle Paul comes from the Torah, because in the book of Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, it says, Hear, O Yisharah, Yahuwah our God, Yahuwah is one. Love Yahuwah your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. And so what we see that is a clear message of Yahuwah and our King Yahushua to all of us, we who belong to the Assembly of Yahushua, this is the clear message. We as parents, we have the responsibility to teach the words of Yahuwah so that the children will not forget them because the Bible says these commandments must be upon our hearts, right? And what Yahuwah says is to the parent is impress them on your children. What does that mean? We need to teach the commandments of Yahuwah in such a way that it will leave a mark in their minds and their hearts. That's what the word impress means. We leave a seal, a mark, in their minds and their hearts. How do they do that? How, what do they do in the olden times? Well, they taught the words of Yahuwah all the time. They kept repeating it. That's one way, one way of making an impression, right? That's one way of making an impression. What else? They created symbols like the chichit, right? That they wear, symbols. To, that's one way to impress it upon their hearts and minds. What else? Write them on door frames. So when they see it everywhere, you know, it's kind of good. For example, your house, if you can, you can have your house with lots of, um, you know, sometimes you have the picture frames and you can post like the verses of Yahuwah. And we're going, what we're going to provide uh, to all the members of the Assembly of Yahusha are PDFs of the Ten Commandments that you can print out. Okay, and you can post that on the walls of your houses so that you can remind yourself, remind your children about the commandments of Yahuwah, especially, I mean, when we speak of the commandments, we talk about the 10 commandments of Yahuwah. So we want to make an impression in their minds, in their hearts. 
But do you know what the best way is? To make an impression in the minds and hearts of our kids. It's when we, as parents, we actually do what we tell them that they should be doing. That's how you make an impression. Because if a parent is not living with integrity, if they're teaching their kids do not lie, then you lie. You're teaching the kids do not steal, but then you steal. You're teaching the kids not to do this or to do that, but you're doing the opposite. You know what kind of message we're giving to our kids? The word of God should not be taken seriously, right? And so what happens when they have that mindset? So when a person, when a parent teaches but does not obey himself what he is teaching, it's actually going to work against you because you're teaching them and you're training them not to obey. You're training them to disobey and pretend that they're not disobeying. This is why it's dangerous. If we want to make an impression, let's practice our religion. Let's practice what we believe. Let's practice what we teach. Do you know why? Sometimes we belong to a religion, right? We belong to a group, a religious group like the Assembly of Yahusha before we came from the INC, right? Haven't you noticed that there are parents today who, when you look at the behavior, they obey. They profess obedience, you know, they do all these things, but then their kids, you're kind of surprised. How come they turn out like that, right? That could be a sign that the parents are not doing what they're teaching. And so the kids pick up on that. One of the things kids don't like is hypocrisy. So when our children begin to behave in odd ways, you know, they're like aloof. I mean, they're not really obedient to the word of God. It could be that maybe we're teaching them, but we're not doing what we're teaching. That's powerful. If we want to make an impression, we need to do what we teach. That's how you make an impression. And we need to do that, especially now. And one of the things that we need to impress in the minds and hearts of our kids is this, is this truth that's part of the Shema, that Yahuwah is our God, and he is one, right? What we need to impress in the hearts and minds of our kids today is that there is a creator of all things, that he's not a created image of man, but that he is the creator of all things. His name is Yahuwah. There is a God who created all things. We need to do that because nowadays, what is being preached in the pulpits of the educational system? Evolution. Freedom of choice, right? It's good to have freedom of choice. Do what you believe is right. It's good to do what you, you mean, it's good to, to have freedom, but wait a minute, our freedom should be bound by the will of Yahuwah. See, that's the difference. And when we realize that the will of Yahuwah is actually true freedom for our souls, then we find joy in that. And we need to do that, especially now. We need to teach our children, Yahuwah is one, Yahuwah is our God who created all things. Why? This is uh, the warning of Apostle Paul. We're almost done. Romans 1, 21, 25. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men, birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, sexual impurity, 
for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Brethren, why must we as parents in the assembly of Yahushua more than ever impress in the minds and hearts of our children, even if they're teenagers, this truth that Yahuwah is the creator of all things and that we must glorify him as such. Because if we don't, we're going to be influenced by the ways of the world. If we don't take the time to teach our kids what to believe, the world will teach them what to believe. And what will the world teach them what to be, as what is right to believe? They will say to the, the, the world will say to our children, there's no God. And so they will present to our children instead of worshiping and glorifying the true God, Yahuwah, that we will give in to these false ideas of God, humanism, pantheism, evolution, to end up worshiping the creature, the idea, rather than the creator who made all things. And once the kids buy into that, the Bible says, and Yahuwah gives them over to their desires. You see, sin and idolatry perverts thinking. It perverts one's desires. It perverts the culture. The culture as it is today is perverted. And the root cause is idolatry. They choose to worship the creature, not the creator. We as people of Elohim, we have to make sure we pass on to our children this culture of glorifying Yahuwah. Teaching the commands of Yahuwah. But the bottom line is, even if we do all that, it's still up to our kids to make that choice, to make that decision. Let's give them the best chance. Let's set them up to succeed, not to fail, but to succeed. Impress upon them without exasperating them. The teachings of Yahuwah, the teachings of Yahusha, raise them and train them in that discipline. Because when we train them with the teachings of Yahuwah, what will happen when they get older? Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. This is true. While they're so young, teach them about Yahuwah Abba. This is why it's good that our young members in the Assembly of Yahusha, we bring our kids to our children's ministry. This is why we have a children's ministry. You know, this coming Friday and Saturday, we're going to have another session for the children's ministry. Parents who are here, let's do our best to bring them there. So at a young age, they will understand Yahuwah is the creator of all things. And when they get older, they will not depart from it, provided that we as parents will, will demonstrate by our deeds, by our actions, by the priorities and values in our life, that indeed we believe and we follow what we preach and say. And if we will do this, there's a part of the passage I want to emphasize in the book of Exodus 24 to 6, the last passage of our studies, is about idolatry, right? I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected. Even children, the first and fourth generations of those who reject me. And so the consequence of sin, the effect of sin, it affects the generations to come. It's like when a father, for example, commits a crime. And because of the crime he committed, he goes to jail. Right? Because the, the father's in jail, what's going to happen to the family? 
they have no source of income. They're going to suffer poverty. The name of the father is going to affect the name of the child. And so growing up, he's going to be teased. He's going to be ridiculed, right? And so the father, because of his sins, set, sets up the family for failure, not success. But the son can still have a chance. He can still make his own choices, right? But we don't want to create a setting for our children where they are swimming up the river. No, we want to make sure we create a path. We create an atmosphere for them that will enable them to succeed in glorifying Yahuwah. And if we do this, the Bible says in verse uh, six, but I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. You see, Yahuwah, when he gave this passage, he's thinking of ways to bless the families, the homes. But it begins with we understanding that Yahuwah is the only true Allahim because idolatry is the sin that destroys all things. And sometimes we think idolatry is just about bowing down to images and idols. No, it's also about making other things priority over who? Yahuwah. Brethren, let's teach our children the most important thing it's not your education. It's not your business. It's not your house. The most important thing by far is worshiping and glorifying Yahuwah. Everything else, everything else is second place. In the words of Apostle Paul, compared to knowing Yahusha, compared to knowing Yahuwah, everything else is what? Garbage. And so let's make that impression. Our kids, and this will enable our kids to receive the unfailing love that Jehovah will lavish upon our children because they obey the commands of Allah. Let's train our kids to obey the commandments of Yahuwah Allahim. That is our lesson for today. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Everlasting Abba, merciful Yahuwah Allahim in heaven. Thank you so much for the guidance of your holy teachings. Your holy words inspire us. We praise you and glorify you. Thank you, because we know you want each and every one of us to succeed. You want us to be encouraged. Yes. You want us to be influenced by you. Growing up in these last days, influenced by a perverted culture, we know that's difficult to do. Yes. But we know that you, loving Abba, you are our inspiration. Yes. Your words encourage us. And so we commit our life to you. We will worship you. Help us that me, we may impress this in the hearts and minds of our children. We beg you, bless our children, that they will see that more than anything in life, what is worth dying for is the opportunity to worship you, to serve you. Father, please bless our children. Keep them away from the influence of the world. Keep them away from wickedness. Help them to overcome. May you please bless them with minds focused upon thee. Their hearts desiring, desiring heavenly things, spiritual things that you will give to each and every one of us. Our King Yahushua, may you bless us that we may overcome. We want to be with you and be by your side, to sit beside you when all is said and done. 
to receive your salvation, that our bodies will be changed to become like yours, yes. so that we can be with you forevermore. Mm -hmm. Father, thank you so much for listening to our prayers. Yes. Bless your people throughout the world. Help us to be one in calling upon your name, Yahuwah, yes. and to worship you forever. Yes. We ask and beg everything, loving Father, yes. in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Amen.